Chapter Seventeen, Part Two, of Volume Two, of A Popular History of France, from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of A Popular History of France, from the Earliest Times, by François Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Seventeen, The Crusades, Their Decline and End, Part Two. But the success was short, and ere long dearly paid for. On entering Pisidia, the French army split up into two, and afterwards into several divisions, which scattered and lost themselves in the defiles of the mountains. The Turks waited for them, and attacked them at the mouths and from the tops of the passes. Before long there was nothing but disorder and carnage. The little band which surrounded the king was cut to pieces at his side, and Louis himself, with his back against the rock, defended himself, alone, for some minutes, against several Turks, till they, not knowing who he was, drew off, whereupon he, suddenly throwing himself upon a stray horse, rejoined his advanced guard, who believed him dead. The army continued their march pell-mell, king, barons, knights, soldiers, and pilgrims, uncertain day by day what would become of them on the morrow. The Turks harassed them afield. The towns in which there were Greek governors, residing, refused to receive them. Provisions fell short, arms and baggage were abandoned on the road. On arriving in Pamphylia at Satalia, a little port on the Mediterranean, the impossibility of thus proceeding became evident. They were still, by land, forty days' march from Antioch, whereas it required but three to get there by sea. The governor of Satalia proposed to the king to embark the crusaders. But when the vessels arrived, they were quite inadequate for such an operation. Hardly could the king the barons and the knights find room in them, and it would be necessary to abandon and expose to the perils of the land march the majority of the infantry and all the mere pilgrims who had followed the army. Louis, disconsolate, fluctuated between the most diverse resolutions, at one time demanding to have everybody embarked at any risk, at another determining to march by land himself, with all who could not be embarked, distributing whatever money and provisions he had left, being as generous and sympathetic as he was improvident and incapable, and never letting a day pass, says Odo of Doyle, who accompanied him, without hearing mass and crying unto the God of the Christians. At last he embarked with his queen, Eleonor, and his principal knights, and towards the end of March, 1148, he arrived at Antioch, having lost more than three-quarters of his army. Scarcely had he taken a few days' rest, when messengers came to him on behalf of Baldwin III, king of Jerusalem, begging him to repair without delay to the holy city. Louis was as eager to go thither as the king and people of Jerusalem were to see him there but his speedy departure encountered unforeseen hindrances. 
Raymond of Poitiers, at that time Prince of Antioch, by his marriage with Constance, granddaughter of the great Bohemond of the First Crusade, was uncle to the Queen of France, Eleanor of Aquitaine. He was, says William of Tyre, a lord of noble descent, of tall and elegant figure, the handsomest of the princes of the earth, a man of charming affability and conversation, open-handed and magnificent beyond measure, and moreover ambitious and eager to extend his small dominion. He had at heart, beyond everything, the conquest of Aleppo and Caesarea. In this design the king of France and the crusaders, who were still about him, might be of real service, and he attempted to win them over. Louis answered that he would engage in no enterprise until he had visited the holy places. Raymond was impetuous, irritable, and as unreasonable in his desires as unfortunate in his undertakings. He had quickly acquired great influence over his niece, Queen Eleanor, and he had no difficulty in winning her over to his plans. She, says William of Tyre, was a very inconsiderate woman, caring little for royal dignity and conjugal fidelity. She took great pleasure in the court of Antioch, where she also conferred much pleasure, even upon Mussulmans, whom, as some chronicles say, she did not repulse. And when the king, her husband, spoke to her of approaching departure, they emphatically refused, and to justify her opposition, she declared that they could no longer live together, as there was, she asserted, a prohibited decree of consequinity between them. Louis, who loved her with an almost excessive love, says William of Nangis, was at the same time angered and grieved. He was austere in morals, easily jealous and religiously scrupulous, and for a moment he was on the point of separating from his wife. But the counsels of his chief barons dissuaded him, and thereupon, taking a sudden resolution, he set out from Antioch secretly by night, carrying off the queen almost by force. They both hid their wrath as much as possible, says the chronicle, but at heart they had ever this outrage. We shall see before long what were the consequences. No history can offer so striking an example of the importance of well-assorted unions amongst the highest as well as the lowest, and of the prolonged woes which may be brought upon a nation by the domestic evils of royalty. On approaching Jerusalem, in the month of April 1148, Louis VII saw coming to meet him King Baldwin III, and the patriarch and the people, singing, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of Lord. So soon as he had entered the city, his pious wishes were fulfilled by his being taken to pay a solemn visit to all the holy places. At the same time, arrived from Constantinople, the Emperor Conrad, almost alone and in the guise of a simple pilgrim. All the remnant of the crusaders, French and German, hurried to join them. Impatient to exhibit their power on the theatre of their creed, and to render to the kingdom of Jerusalem some striking service, the two western sovereigns, 
and Baldwin, and their principal barons, assembled at Ptolemais, St. Jean of the Ark, to determine the direction to be taken by their enterprise. They decided upon the siege of Damascus, the most important and the nearest of the Mussulman princedoms in Syria, and in the early part of June they moved thither with forces incomplete and ill-united. Neither the prince of Antioch nor the counts of Edessa and Tripolis had been summoned to St. Jean of Arc, and Queen Eleanor had not appeared. At the first attack, the ardor of the assailants and the brilliant personal prowess of their chiefs, of the Emperor Conrad amongst others, struck surprise and consternation into the besieged, who, foreseeing the necessity of abandoning their city, laid across the streets beams, chains, and heaps of stones, to stop the progress of the conquerors, and give themselves time for flying, with their families and their wealth, by the northern and southern gates. But personal interest and secret negotiations, before long, brought into the Christian camp weakness, together with discord. Many of the barons were already disputing amongst themselves, at the very elbows of the sovereigns, for the future government of Damascus. Others were not inaccessible to the rich offers which came to them from the city, and it is maintained that King Baldwin himself suffered himself to be bribed by a sum of two hundred thousand pieces of gold which were sent to him by Mogier Edin, emir of Damascus, and which turned out to be only pieces of copper covered with gold leaf. News came that the emirs of Aleppo and Mosul were coming, with considerable forces, to the relief of the place. Whatever may have been the cause of retreat, the crusader sovereigns decided upon it, and raising the siege, returned to Jerusalem. The emperor Conrad, in indignation and confusion, set out precipitately to return to Germany. King Louis could not make up his mind, thus to quit the holy land in disgrace, and without doing anything for its deliverance. He prolonged his stay there for more than a year, without anything to show for his time and zeal. His barons and his knights nearly all left him, and by sea or land made their way back to France. But the king still lingered. I am under a bond, he wrote to Sugar, not to leave the holy land, save with glory, and after doing somewhat for the cause of God and the kingdom of France. At last, after many fruitless entreaties, Sugar wrote to him, Dear king and lord, I must cause thee to hear the voice of thy whole kingdom. Why dost thou fly from us? After having toiled so hard in the east, after having endured so many almost unendurable evils, by what harshness or what cruelty comes it, that now, when the barons and grandees of the kingdom have returned, thou persistest in abiding with the barbarians? The disturbers of the kingdom have entered into it again, and thou, who shouldst defend it, remainest in exile, as if thou wert a prisoner. Thou givest over the lamb to the wolf, thy dominions to the ravishers. We conjure thy majesty, we invoke thy piety, 
we adjure thy goodness. We summon thee in the name of the fealty we owe thee. Tarry not at all, or only a little while, beyond Easter, else thou wilt appear, in the eyes of God, guilty of a breach, of that oath which thou didst take at the same time as the crown. At length Louis made up his mind, and embarked at saint and acre at the commencement of July, 1149, and he disembarked in the month of October, at the port of St. Giles, at the mouth of the Rhone, whence he wrote to Sugar, We be hastening unto you safe and sound, and we command you not to defer, paying us a visit, on a given day, and before all our other friends. Many rumours reach us, touching our kingdom, and knowing not for certain, we be desirous to learn from you how we should bear ourselves, or hold our peace in every case. And let none but yourself know what I say to you at this present writing. This preference and this confidence were no more than Louis the Seventh owed to Sugar. The abode of Saint-Denis, after having opposed the crusade with a freedom of spirit and a far-sightedness unique, perhaps, in his times, had, during the king's absence, borne the weight of government with a political tact, a firmness, and a disinterestedness rare in any times. He had upheld the authority of absent royalty, kept down the pretensions of vassals, and established some degree of order wherever his influence could reach. He had provided for the king's expenses in Palestine by good administration of the domains and revenues of the crown, and lastly he had acquired such renown in Europe that men came from Italy and from England to view the salutary effects of his government, and that the name of Solomon of his age was conferred upon him by strangers, his contemporaries. With the exception of great sovereigns, such as Charlemagne or William the Conqueror, only great bishops or learned theologians, and that by their influence in the church or by their writings, had obtained this European reputation from the ninth to the twelfth century. Sugar was the first man who attained to it by the sole merit of his political conduct, and who offered an example of a minister justly admired for his ability and wisdom, beyond the circle in which he lived. When he saw that the king's return drew near, he wrote to him, saying, You will, I think, have ground to be satisfied with our conduct. We have remitted to the knights of the temple the money we had resolved to send you. We have, besides, reimbursed the Count of Vermandeus the three thousand livres he had lent us for your service. Your land and your people are in the enjoyment, for the present, of a happy peace. You will find your houses and your palaces in good condition through the care we have taken to have them repaired. Behold me now in the decline of age, and I dare to say that the occupations in which I have engaged for the love of God and through attachment to your person, have added many to my years. In respect of the queen, your consort, I am of opinion that you should conceal the displeasure she causes you, until, restored to your dominions, 
you can calmly deliberate upon that, and upon other subjects. On once more entering his kingdom, Louis, who at a distance had sometimes lent a credulous ear to the complaints of the discontented, or to the calumnies of Sugar's enemies, did him full justice, and was the first to give him the name of father of the country. The ill success of the crusade, and the remembrance of all that France had risked and lost for nothing, made a deep impression upon the public, and they honoured Sugar for his far-sightedness, whilst they blamed St. Bernard for the infatuation which he had fostered, and for the disasters which had followed it. St. Bernard accepted their reproaches in a pious spirit. If, said he, there must be murmuring against God or against me, I prefer to see the murmurs of men falling upon me rather than upon the Lord. To me it is a blessed thing that God should deign to use me as a buckler to shield himself. I shrink not from humiliation, provided that his glory be unassailed. But at the same time St. Bernard himself was troubled, and he permitted himself to give expression to his troubled feelings in a singularly free and bold strain of piety. We be fallen upon very grievous times, he wrote to Pope Eugenius III. The Lord provoked by our sins, seemed in some sort to have determined to judge the world before the time, and to judge it, doubtless, according to his equity, but not remembering his mercy. Do not the heathen say, Where is now their God? And who can wonder? The children of the church, those who be called Christian, lie stretched upon the desert, smitten with the sword or dead by famine. Did we undertake the work rashly? Did we behave ourselves lightly? How patiently God heareth the sacrilegious voices and blasphemies of these Egyptians! Assuredly his judgments be righteous. Who does not know it? But in the present judgment there is so profound a depth that I hesitate not to call him blessed, whosoever is not surprised and offended by it. The soul of man no less than the shifting scene of the world, is often a great subject of surprise. King Louis, on his way back to France, had stayed some days at Rome, and there, in a conversation with the Pope, he had almost promised him a new crusade to repair the disasters of that from which he had found it so difficult to get out. Sugar, when he became acquainted with this project, opposed it, as he had opposed the former. But at the same time, as he, in common with all his age, considered the deliverance of the Holy Land to be the bounden duty of Christians, he conceived the idea of dedicating the large fortune and great influence he had acquired to the cause of a new crusade, to be undertaken by himself and at his own expense, without compromising either king or state. He unfolded his views to a meeting of bishops, assembled at Charters, and he went to Tours, and paid a visit to the tomb of St. Martin, to implore his protection. Already more than ten thousand pilgrims were in arms at his call, and already he had himself chosen a warrior 
of ability and renown to command them, when he fell ill and died at the end of four months, in 1152, aged seventy, and thanking the Almighty, says his biographer, for having taken him to him, not suddenly, but little by little, in order to bring him step by step to the rest, needful for the weary men. It is said that, in his last days, and when St. Bernard was exhorting him not to think any more, save only of the heavenly Jerusalem, Sugar still expressed to him his regret at dying without having succored the city, which was so dear to them both. Almost at the very moment when Sugar was dying, a French council, assembled at Beaugency, was annulling on the ground of prohibited consequinity, and with the tacit consent of the two persons most concerned, the marriage of Louis the Seventh and Eleanor of Aquitaine. Some months afterwards, at Whitsuntide in the same year, in the same year, Henry Plantagenet, Duke of Normandy and Count of Anjou, espoused Eleanor, thus adding to his already great possessions Poitou and Aquitaine, and becoming in France a vassal more powerful than the king his suzerain. Twenty months later, in 1154, at the death of King Stephen, Henry Plantagenet became king of England, and thus there was a recurrence, in an aggravated form, of the position which had been filled by William the Conqueror, and which was the first cause of rivalry between France and England, and of the consequent struggles of considerably more than the century's duration. Little more than a year after Sugar, on the 20th of April, 1153, St. Bernard died also. The two great men, of whom one had excited, and the other opposed the second crusade, disappeared together from the theatre of the world. The crusade had completely failed. After a lapse of scarce forty years, a third crusade began. When a great idea is firmly fixed in men's minds, with the twofold sanction of duty and feeling, Many generations live and die in its service, before efforts are exhausted, and the end reached, or abandoned. During this forty years' interval, between the end of the second and beginning of the third crusade, the relative positions of West and East, Christian Europe and Mussulman Asia, remained the same outwardly and according to the general aspect of affairs. But in Syria and in Palestine there was a continuance of the struggle between Christendom and Islamry, with various fortunes on either side. The Christian kingdom of Jerusalem still stood, and after Godfrey de Bouillon, from 1100 to 1180, there had been a succession of eight kings, some energetic and bold, aspiring to extend their young dominion, others indolent and weak, upon a tottering throne. The rivalries and often the defections and treasons of the petty Christian princes and lords, who were set up at different points in Palestine and Syria, endangered their common cause. Fortunately similar rivalries, dissensions and treasons, prevailed amongst the Mussulman emirs. 
some of them Turks and others Persians or Arabs, and at one time foes, at another dependents, of the caliphs of Baghdad or of Egypt. Anarchy and civil war harassed both races, and both religions with almost equal impartiality. But beneath the surface of simultaneous agitation and monotony, great changes were being accomplished or preparing for accomplishment in the West. The principal sovereigns of the preceding generation, Louis the Seventh, King of France, Conrad the Third, Emperor of Germany, and Henry the Second, King of England, were dying, and princes more juvenile and more enterprising, or simply less wearied out, Philip Augustus, Frederick Barbarossa, and Richard Coeur de Lion, were taking their places. In the East, the theatre of policy and events was being enlarged. Egypt was becoming the goal of ambition with the chiefs, Christian or Mussulman. Of Eastern Asia and Damietta, the key of Egypt was the object of their enterprises. Those of Amaury I, the boldest of the kings of Jerusalem, as well as those of the sultans of Damascus and Aleppo. Noureddin and Saladin, Nor Eddin and Saladin, Turks by origin, had commenced their fortunes in Syria. But it was in Egypt that they culminated. And when Saladin became the most illustrious as well as the most powerful of Mussulman sovereigns, it was with the title of Sultan of Egypt and of Syria that he took his place in history. End of chapter 17, part 2